The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So last week I began to talk about the this map the Buddha uses to help us illuminate our actual experience. So it's not meant to be theoretical in any way. It's really meant to help us understand experience. And by that I mean this experience, not some theoretical experience when any map of any real value helps us understand the lived experience. So we have this map of the Four Noble Truths, or maybe it would be easier or better to call it the Four Liberating Ways of Understanding Our Experience, or Four Ways of understanding experience that allows the heart to be free or allows the heart to realize freedom. And I've been thinking a lot about this. I mentioned last week briefly, you know, in light of the special circumstances of the last, well, years really, but especially the last month with the Ferguson decision and the incident in New York City that grand jury decision not to prosecute the police person in New York City, and then the torture report coming out earlier this week, and then more generally just the, you know, the greater and greater um, inequities that exist in the world, of course, and in our own culture, and just how we seem not able to really address it. So, in a cultural way, in a sort of broader societal way, it becomes apparent, seems to me, more and more apparent um, that this existence, being in this world, is uh, unjust and unpleasant and hard to bear. So a lot of what I notice you know, over the years in my life is a tendency and this is probably true for all of us in our own way, you know, we don't want to inhabit that kind of world. And not being able to fix it or make it go away, then it unconsciously, not consciously, makes sense to be in denial. Like where we pretend, not consciously, but unconsciously pretend, it's okay the way it is, or it will work itself out, or it's not my fault. I didn't do this. I didn't make the world this way. Or somebody's to blame. It's their karma. It's their responsibility. So the Buddha sets up this first noble truth, this liberating understanding that no, there, this truth or this recognition that life isn't perfect that experience is limited, unsatisfying, unjust, insecure, uncertain, that actually it's relevant. It's not a problem that we have to hide from, but we need to open to that. It's actually the heart, the mind's unwillingness to look at the very real difficulty or pain that actually causes, is the cause for suffering. The Buddha said as much, I think I mentioned this last week, it's the not knowing suffering, 
the not understanding the limited imperfect nature of our you can like point to the culture the imperfect nature of our culture or the imperfect nature of my personality the way my mind is conditioned or the imperfect setup of having a body that's born ages and dies I mean you can look at the limited nature of experience in many basically any angle and we'll see the any angle on the world, whatever we highlight and look at, we'll see it's limited. It can't be counted on. It's not reliable as a, a reliable source for ultimate happiness because it's limited, because it changes, because we can't govern it, make it just right, make it perfect. So, <clears throat> you know, even though we all know, I mean, if I did a survey in the room, everybody here would tell, we tell each other that mental stress, feeling that the world is hard to bear or seeing the imperfect, imperfection of my personality or my culture or whatever we're looking at, even though we all know that that isn't happiness, it's interesting that the Buddha makes that the first step. Like we have to have integrity around the world we inhabit in order for something beautiful or positive to happen. It doesn't happen when we're in denial. It doesn't happen when we're caught in some feeling of resignation. You know, life sucks. It's too complicated to fix. Or you know, the bad guys are in charge. It seems easier to, you know, separate ourselves because of this recognition of what is limited or imperfect or hard to bear. It seems to make sense to separate ourselves as if that were somehow possible. And so the Buddha might say that this is the basic or fundamental wrong move. Because life is difficult, existence is difficult, having a body is difficult, having relationships are difficult, having living in a culture where there are differences is difficult. You know? Living in a culture that has all kinds of historic strands of trauma that are working, hopefully working their way out is difficult. It's, it's uh, confusing and scary and makes you want to be distracted. You know, this is, this is the experience you know, that I'm beginning to see of recognizing the privileged position that I've, I've lived in as a white male and other privileges that I have in my life. And part of that expression is um, like pretending it's okay, like I should feel fine. Instead of, no, it doesn't feel good. And, and that, uh, you know, it's, it's like we expect, I mentioned this last week, we expect that life is here to deliver a good feeling. But maybe that idea that life is here to deliver a good feeling for us 
is actually the wrong approach to take. Maybe the, and this is the, the Buddha's approach, maybe by opening to life as it is, the uncertainty of life, which exists on all levels, the injustice, and this happens, I mean, injustice in terms of race in this country, but also injustice when a young kid gets hit by a car. That doesn't seem fair. That that kid, you know, what was that kid? Why did God let that happen? Or why did nature let that happen? So there are all of these events that we don't understand. They're, in a sense, lawful, but they don't seem fair. doesn't make sense to us. And so maybe freedom comes from opening to that, inhabiting that space, respecting respecting in the sense like I'm willing to be sensitive to the insecurity, to the fact that my life, my body, even my mind is ungovernable. Like I can't make my mind behave. I'm assuming that's true for you too. Like even in our sit. I mean, we can shape the mind to some degree, but nobody is in perfect control of anything, really. So by inhabiting that space, which is really what the First Noble Truth is about, it's like we come out of the closet and we, at least alone, but hopefully in community and wider and wider communities, in different ways, we start acknowledging to each other, it hurts. You know, being a sensitive, clearly aware being, it it hurts. And instead of thinking the fact that it hurts is a mistake, we begin to recognize that the fact that I'm recognizing that it hurts to be sensitive, to sort of, like I said in the guided sit, be in the middle, being aware, and that it hurts, that the heart is uneasy, it's like that alignment is something that's beautiful. Like it's, it has a scent of freedom because my mind is beginning, you know, little by little, our minds begin to be free of having to be in denial of what's true, which is life is uncertain, it's unjust, it's imperfect, it's limited. All sense experience is limited. I mentioned last week, no matter how many good things that have happened to us in our lives, I mean, really beautiful good things, it hasn't taken care of the need for good things. We still want more good things. We still expect more good things. We'll be disappointed if we've had our full share of good things and now it's time for the not good things, right? So some of us maybe have had more of those traditional good things like privilege or wealth or respect or you know things that we look for in life, want mostly in life. Others have had less, but we all want more. So this is the limited nature. So when we start to acknowledge, you know, that that existential position, then it's also the real ground of community. Because there's a sense of truthfulness when we you know, sit across from another human being or in a larger group and we acknowledge together that life is difficult. That is, life is difficult here and as I look around, I recognize that 
the same expressions of difficulty here manifest in greater degrees often, maybe sometimes in less intense ways, and all the other beings around me. I mean, we've all felt excluded in our lives. And some people, that feeling of exclusion is institutionalized in the culture, you know. And for others of us, it happens every once in a while where we feel put down or feel like we don't belong. So we can think of this as a first step that even though we don't, we're not interested, you know, obviously we don't aspire to be in this place where the heart is seeing the imperfect nature the limited nature, the unreliable nature. But we want to open our mind to the fact that it might be a very healing move. It might be a liberating move to go from denial, pretending it's some other way, or pretending that I've made a mistake. You know, the fact that I'm noticing this underlying uneasiness, it's like I made some mistake. I must have made a wrong turn somewhere. So we blame ourselves or we blame somebody else. If, you know, if my partner, if she just got her act together, then I wouldn't have this sense that life is limited or imperfect. You know, we, or my body, if it just got its act together and finally got healthy or something. But to notice, because otherwise we won't do that first move. We have to be, you know, inspired to acknowledge the limited nature of existence. Otherwise, it's going to seem to make sense to stay distracted. Because there are a lot of good TV shows and, you know, little dramas here and there that we can and do fill our lives with, things that seem really important. Even, surprisingly, even becoming an activist to try to change the world and make it a better place even if your activities as an activist actually do set in motion good things, the identification, the way you're being an activist can be more acting out of denial and distraction. So even though you might be doing good in the world, in your own heart, you might be counterproductive. Because it's like, I'm working my butt off not because I want the world to be a better place, although that's what I tell myself. I'm working my butt off because I don't want to feel what I feel. I don't want to see what I see. I don't want to acknowledge the way that it is. So this we can see as a, uh, an important step to go from being busy being in denial, feeling helpless or having given up or caught in some kind of resignation or some kind of blame, to locating the experience of dukkha, as we say in Buddhism, or this unsatisfactoriness, uneasiness of the heart, locating it right here. So whatever it is, it's right here. And we're not saying that there aren't causes out there. We're just saying that the experience of life, the burden, or the uneasiness, the insecurity, the vulnerability, that that's right here. 
in this body and mind, right? That's a powerful step to acknowledge that, at least alone. And then it gets much stronger. It's more supported when we can do it in community. And hopefully, I don't know if it's true, but hopefully that's something that maybe is happening in our culture. Because this is something we have to do in our communities as well as in our own heart. We have to acknowledge how it is. And that it hurts. And then there's really no way to compassion. And compassion is what allows for a wise response. Because compassion, by definition, like from a Buddhist sense, karuna is the Pali word, compassion means the heart isn't afraid of vulnerability, isn't afraid of suffering, isn't afraid of the hurt that we see. It's like if you have a loved one who's dying or in the hospital in a lot of pain or suffering the the pain of divorce or the pain of loss or of some kind. You know, this is, uh, we learn a lot about what I'm talking about by looking how we are around a good friend or a loved one who's in a lot of pain. Because if we want to manage their pain so that they can be done with it, so I don't have to be bothered by the fact that they're suffering, that's telling us that we're in denial. Like this suffering that this friend of mine, loved one, is experiencing is an aberration that I'm going to fix. And then we'll go back to the norm, which is everything's fine. As opposed to understanding that it's always one thing or another. And the idea is to be able to be close. Because when I'm close to your pain or my pain, then I might have more clarity about how to respond. And the fact that I'm responding, or the rather the quality, that intimacy, that ability to be close and kind and understanding... It doesn't depend on whether I can do anything to improve the situation. Sometimes, of course, we can, and sometimes we can improve the situation. But regardless of whether we can or can't, in this moment, do anything to improve the situation, we can be close, we can be honest, we can acknowledge, oh, it's like this. This is how it is. This is what I'm seeing. I'm not afraid to see. I'm not afraid to be sensitive. I'm not afraid of ambiguity or uncertainty. Like in terms of some of our cultural issues, you know, it may not be clear. Like immediately, what should I do? But just because that's an uncomfortable place, we can learn to be in that uncomfortable place of not knowing what to do. Instead of either pretending we do know what to do or pretending there isn't anything for me to do, there's this other way. Like, I don't know if there's anything for me to do. And I'm going to stay right in the middle and sensitive because it might become clear to me at some point that there is something to say, something to do. And you see how it's different than our normal mode of like, I just want a quiet, safe place. You know, the sort of 
epitomized by like this, the gated communities that we want to build, you know, each of us in our own particular way, like who's on the inside of our gated community and who's on the outside. But there are definitely, you know, everybody here, there's somebody we don't want in our gated community, <laughs> whatever, it, however you imagine that, you know, our safe place. But maybe it isn't about safety. Maybe it's about realizing a heart or mind that doesn't need to be safe or feels enlivened by not needing to be safe. Feels free, the freedom of not needing to be safe. The freedom of not needing the world to be different than it is. So then if it becomes different, like if the world unfolds in a really beautiful place, we really listen to each other and we make some changes and we start to share like we were taught in kindergarten and take turns, you know. <laughs> and uh, But the thing is, that's like icing on the cake because we already have been training or learning how to be free in the imperfect world. And of course, the clarity we get from that freedom, it makes it easier to respond in different ways because our response isn't coming out of a neurotic need to be safe. And I need to be safe by fixing your problem. And we do this with race, you know, like this, or, or even things that are, you know, we have more distance from like the Middle East crisis. You know, it's like, it's interesting. I notice, like, I want to have an opinion so I don't have to be in this ambiguous place like there's a problem and I don't know what the answer is. We, we're not comfortable and the same thing with death. It's like part of what exists in religious histories is, you know, people like, I'll just take an answer. I don't really care if it makes sense. That explains death. That sort of wraps it up in a neat way as opposed to clearly acknowledging to each other we don't really know what that's all about because we haven't been there yet. And we could say, well, you know, we're just these biological things and at some point they end and that's it. Some people hold on to that, lock on to that because it's something to lock on to and it's preferable to not knowing, knowing that they don't know. And some people have other ideas that you, you know, get reborn or you go to heaven or you go to hell or, you know, all kinds of stories that we have or ideas that we have and then fight each other over because we're pretty sure we're right. Even probably the ag agnostic view we could fight over. You know, it's like, no, we don't know. <laughs> and we could have a campaign against those people who think they know. Because we know we don't know. <laughs> so it's really easy to get stuck in like wanting, feeling the need to define things. So this this first noble truth where the Buddha invites us to learn how to inhabit. He, he, he invites us for, to have three insights. I think I briefly mentioned these last week. In this first noble truth, this first liberating way of understanding our actual ordinary experience. So the first insight is when the mind recognizes, oh my goodness, this experience as a human being right now is limited. It's uncertain, it's ambiguous, it's unreliable, I can't nail it down. So 
That's an insight, of course, we can have in any moment. So normally, you know, most of our moments we're living under the influence of a concept that sort of painted a picture that's defining this moment that sort of gives it some oomph, like solidity. I'm at Kamagran on Sunday night and this is who I am, you know, and then fill in the blanks. And so the first step then, like in this moment, as soon as my mind realizes, well, that's just a thought, and then that recognition, well, that's just a thought, causes, you know, the attachment or the identification to the thought to disappear, and then whatever ground that thought was seemingly providing falls away, and so the experience becomes more groundless, not defined, and then very quickly, the impulse, the habit in our heart or mind is to replace it with another th- thought. I'm a good Buddhist practitioner, right? So that's the ground I'm standing on. But that's a thought too, right? Or maybe an attachment. Just another identity that is unreliable, uncertain, and imperfect. All identities, victimizer, victim, And so, in our own practice, we're realizing the ungrounded place and realizing that's a good place, not a bad place. There is this limited nature. It's relevant, meaning this is a place to practice. It's a teacher. We're learning how to be steady, not in a fixed way, but in a relaxed way, in the ungrounded, uncertain, unreliable insecure, unjust place of the moment that we're inhabiting right now. It's like one way this is described, it's pretty fun and graphic. Joseph Goldstein uses this as an example sometimes of somebody jumping out of a plane and then realizing they forgot to put the parachute on. You know, And you can imagine the terror all kinds, you know, the terror of hitting the ground and dying, the terror of like, I'm such an idiot to have forgotten to put on the parachute or whatever, or why didn't the instructor remind me? Or, But all the different ways the mind, the heart could get really tight in that experience. And you're falling, falling, really tight, really tight. And after falling a while, you look down and you realize there's no ground. And it's a little bit like this position, you know, when we first are invited to look at the unreliable, unjust, it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. On this relative level, it matters that it's insecure. It matters that good and bad things keep happening to us. It matters that there are people who are really suffering and experiencing the injustice. But in terms of this heart, it's possible to relax with that. That things keep happening and I'm not in control of it. It's actually, we learn, the mind learns, it's not only possible, it's liberating to relax with that. And it's functional, meaning, as I mentioned before, it allows us actually to respond more skillfully when we 
inhabit that insecure place. Not creating a stance from which to act from, but being in that free fall. And that it really tenderizes the heart, you know, because it erodes any stance. So the, the heart has a natural humility which allows for real intimacy, compassion, kindness, appreciating what's beautiful, being easy in the heart, easy in the mind, and easy in the body instead of tight. All of that happens in that free fall. You know, we hear this sometimes about even when things feel or appear to be really ossified, really people are entrenched. And, you know, it seems that way sometimes in this culture um, and in the world. You know, just the way that uh, um, we're sort of digging in deep. Things are getting more entrenched between sort of you know, the United States trying to have safety, you know, just creates reactions which increases the, you know, danger because people are threatened by the United States and so they get, they, they want some power, makes sense to me, and then they have power and then, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute, we don't feel safe when you have power, so we're going to do something about that. And so, you know, this is like as old as anything is. It's one thing leading to another. So in the free fall, it's sort of that the insanity of that just becomes so obvious. It's like as if we're going to win in the end, as, as if that even makes sense, which it doesn't. It only makes sense from what in Buddhism we call wrong view. Like it doesn't make sense that somebody can win. So we can let go right now. We can let go of needing solid ground or needing to be on top or needing to protect our privileged position. Like I noticed, you know, from my point of view, (laughs) I remember thinking about this even in college. I think it really spurred me in a spiritual direction. You know, just realizing that any sort of success or wealth in life doesn't make sense when there are so many people suffering. So it's like, well, why bother? You know, you can, it only makes sense when you feel like it's okay to have a lot when people don't have much and could really use some. And, you know, we all have a way, and I talked about this a couple of we- weeks ago about, you know, now that I'm actually middle class, uh, and have money in the bank, it's like, it's really uneasy in my heart. Like, well, how, how do I justify that? How do I feel about that? And I don't think it's about me giving away all that money. I think it's not trying to come up with a thought that justifies, but, but actually inhabiting the uneasiness. Maybe we should feel uneasy. Maybe that's okay to feel uneasy about that. The privilege of having some money in the bank or the privilege of having some safety where I live or the, you know, all the different ways that we have 
something. Because it, it makes us feel much more alive and it keeps reminding me of something that, yeah, it's kind of nice having some money in the bank now, but ultimately, it's not, I can't take it with me. And I can't really control anything with it. I mean, temporarily, it matters. But it doesn't really change the game fundamentally. Whatever we've built up, this is like we chant sometimes on Sunday morning, which is just like the Sunday evening program, except we do a chant right at the beginning. We rotate to a couple well-known Buddhist chants. And one is called the Five Remembrances. And one of the lines in that chant that we chant in English is, this is a rough paraphrase, but you know, everything that I've accumulated, all that is mine and dear to me, will become otherwise, will become lost. And that's just a fact. So in the next uh, week or so, so we'll meet um, next Wednesday, uh, I'm sorry, next Sunday, but then the 28th is the year-end retreat. So we'll talk one more time about this first noble truth, and then we'll miss a week. And then um, starting in January, we'll come back to the, other, the others of these liberating truths. There is this uncertainty. It's our teacher. It's relevant until we've, in a sense, come right into the middle of it. We're not struggling against it. We're not trying to make it some other way. But we're okay with the insecurity, impermanence, the uncertainty, the unknowableness of life. We're not making that a problem. And that allows for the second noble truth, which we'll talk about in January, which is there's a cause. Like we really see. So it isn't an end. The whole point of dropping denial and distraction and learning to inhabit what is uncertain and unreliable is to set in motion this awakening process. So we're seeing, if we get really steady and unafraid of what's uncertain, then we can start to see how the mind out of habit creates a problem. It's like we create a problem out of insecurity or out of the fact that we don't know that things are unformed or not defined or imperfect. So we see that activity of the mind. So that means the mind sees what needs to be abandoned. This is the second noble truth. There is a cause. It needs to be abandoned. It has been abandoned. But the abandoning of that grasping move of the heart comes from seeing it, not from wanting to let go, but seeing the grasping itself is the cause for letting go. Then the mind realizes a heart or a mind, this heart or mind, that has no grasping. And so in the Buddhist tradition, this is a powerful insight to notice. Now, we probably have had moments of our heart or mind not grasping, but those moments need to be combined or present when the mind is clearly aware. So it's clearly recognizing the non-grasping, the non-struggling, the full release, like you're falling, free fall, and there's not a muscle or any part of the mind that's resisting the flow of life. Or even... uh, 
taking it personal in any way, like, I'm free. I'm just letting it happen. So not even that construction. So it's like that realization, the third noble truth is realizing the pure, full, complete, uninhibited nature of this moment. There's nothing here that is outside of nature. And nature does what it does naturally. There's no friction in nature. We only imagine friction. You know, like a weather person might say, yeah, there's this sort of you know, high pressure system or low pressure system and this other system's coming in and it's meeting some resistance and we're getting some storms. But in reality, even though we talk about it, we sort of personify weather in that way, there's really no conflict between one system and the other. It's just this frictionless activity, right? This interdependent play of forces that know exactly how to interplay together, right? Like we now, Comagron, that means all of us, own a beautiful retreat property in western Wisconsin, about 80 miles away, 46 acres. And uh, I like to walk the woods, of course, when I'm out there. And we do have a few, you know, some several big mature trees on the property. And uh, every once in a while you see the, I don't know if it's Virginia creeper, but one of those vines coiling up those trees, you know? And you immediately personify it like uh, that vine is trying to kill that tree. And, you know, we put it in this sort of personal terms of the struggle between good and evil, usually, because we like that sort of way of talking about it. But it's not that way. That's just a story the mind tells. So this is the third noble truth, is realizing that even though there really is suffering and people really are being oppressed, and sometimes we're that person, and sometimes really bad things happen and sometimes really good things happen, it's all okay. That we don't have to... And being okay doesn't mean we're not going to do something. right? Because that's okay too. Responding to it by saying it's okay means it's okay to let it in. That's what we mean by saying it's okay. Not like it's okay and we don't have to do anything. But it's okay to be right in the middle of it. I don't need to create a defense because there are these terrible injustices that exist in our culture or these terrible habits that exist in my personality. I don't have to be tight, hard, because the world is imperfect. I can be free and free to respond in a skillful way. So that's what we realize with the third noble truth. And then the fourth noble truth, which we'll probably get later in the winter, February, maybe March even, is the Buddha describing the way of living that supports this awakening process, more moments of that insight of, of release. And no, normally talked about as the Eightfold Path. But I want to leave it here so that we have time to hear from each other. You might have your own thoughts or reflections about the suffering that you're seeing in your heart, around you, how you've responded to that, how that response and moments seem to you to be skillful, how your response and moments seem to be unskillful, not helpful. And of course, any questions that you have about 
the Buddhist teachings on dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of existence. So what comes to mind? Yeah, please say your name. Hi, Rachel. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between dukkha and the idea that um, we're in a perpetual state of scarcity or um, not most of but how coming to grips with the limitless nature of things allows or relates to the idea of scarcity being false or... No, I don't know if scarcity is false. Or, um, I think I'm thinking of it as like a scarcity as a motivation for grasping. Yeah, that's the false part. The, the, the sort of reflexive assumption conditioned into our minds because there is scarcity, because there is this very appropriate or natural or unavoidable let's use a provocative word, competition for limited resources, that we should be tight and we should um, see ourselves apart. You know, as a human being, we have this mind, this heart, that's capable of understanding the interdependent nature. So that means we understand it is a competitive world for limited resources And I don't have to pretend that ain't the way it is or I don't have to pretend that I deserve it more than someone else. I can really be in that ambiguous place. I mean, it's really interesting to know, to remember that when you eat food, somebody very much is not eating that food. Somebody else is not eating that food. Please. Uh, More on an emotional level than like yeah 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 and I think for that insight we just have to actually find out like if we do start to be be willing to be more sensitive and our heart starts to break more and more often Will our love, will our compassion, our forgiveness, our patience, the gratitude and joy, will those qualities run out and we'll just be left sort of dry, sort of the doormat of the world? And that I think we just have to find out. And so that's why I use the word enlivening. Like, do you find that you actually have more energy and more beautiful qualities of mind or qualities of heart in this place of being vulnerable than we do when we're in the place of being defended. And I certainly find that that's the case. When I'm in my defensive mode, which is pretty easy for me to fall into, you know, then I, I really start to feel dry. And, and those sort of afflictive emotions seem to make sense, like judging others and uh, yeah, wanting to hurt others even, you know, things like that down, I become mean when I'm feeling apart. And when I am more real and, and authentic and with the imperfect nature, then my heart's much more tender and I feel more alive. You know, fear squeezes life energy out of the system. There's that great line, some of you probably know it, I think it's from Rumi, but one of those ancient poets, 
something like, fear is the worst room in the house. I'd like to see you with better accommodations. <laughs> and it, it's really true. Living in a fear-based way is kind of, has a very dry, sterile feeling and leads to a lot of reactivity, either against ourselves or others. Thanks for bringing that up. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah. So your name? Uh, Kermit. And um, this is backing up to last week, but I think it, it kind of relates to being okay with uh, not feeling safe. Um, last week you mentioned um, a mind that is fearless in the midst of anything that arises. And, uh, you know, that kind of pretty handy sometimes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Do I have that mind? If I do have it, do I have it when I need it? Or do I have to work on it for 10, 20 years? So, anyway, and, you know, I guess I have this fantasy of being the, the uh, old Japanese monk will make a smart mouth remark to the samurai guy who's going to cut his head off with a sword. You know that story about, yeah, there's that story. Speaking of the samurai and the Zen monk, where the samurais invade the village and the temple, everyone's left, but at the temple, the Zen master is still there and will make it a her. So the samurai comes in and says something like, you know, what are you doing here? Don't you know I'm, I'm someone who could easily run my sword right through you? And the Zen master says, you know, and I'm someone, you know, who can allow that to happen. You know, or not be afraid of that happening. And so the samurai bows and leaves, as these stories go. But, but the, the thing I found about fearlessness is the first step is not to be afraid of being afraid. You know, Because the tendency when we hear that kind of teaching about you know, the practice of fearlessness is to be imitative about it, like to imitate being not afraid. But this is why it's nice to talk about vulnerability, like opening to vulnerability. So we're realizing that we don't have to get tight because we are afraid. So let's, I think it's okay to call that non-fear of being afraid. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to have a personality that quivers. It's like I've noticed this too. Um, like when dramatic things happen in life, Sometimes what will arise in my mind is, you know, hey, I've been practicing a long time, or I'm a Buddhist meditation teacher. I should act this way, you know. I've got to present, you know, that kind of foolishness. And uh, over the years, you know, what's so nice is to not have to be, not have to pretend to be different or other than what's actually manifesting in my personality. There's a lot of freedom and not needing our personality to be different than it is, so that when the personality is expressing fear, the non-fear expresses itself as, okay, sometimes it's like this, and you're shaking in your boots, and you do want to crawl under the covers, and it feels like this. And I can acknowledge that. I don't need to be afraid that that's what's arising for me right now. Thanks, Kermit. Let us know how it manifests in your life next week. Other thoughts that come to mind?
Yeah, Jeff. A question that arose when Ajahn Punadama was here actually kind of relates to suffering. And he, he was talking about the uh, Brahma Viharas and um, loving kindness, compassion, um, the wishes that others be healthy. And in particular, my question was about the third one, um, um, empathetic joy. And the question I had that I still have that relates to what you talked about is, he, he talked about these qualities of mind being um, without exception for, for every being in, in the universe, in essence. So that, that includes all human beings. And his example for empathetic joy was seeing, you know, a wealthy, you know, monk seeing a wealthy man on a golden elephant riding through town and being happy for his wealth and power. And the question that arose for me is, how does one do that when your perception of that person and their wealth or power or their every outward appearance of what they represent in your mind equals contributing to suffering in the world? Every, every, I guess it's a matter of your own opinion, but when that person, say, you know, CEO of Monsanto, for example, or someone of that, you talk about the middle class having that, that feeling of guilt about middle class wealth and privilege, but how do you go about having joy for the um, achievements of someone who has an influence of, from my perception at least, only brings suffering to other people? This appreciative joy, which is one of the be considered to be one of the beautiful emotions, it's the mind that's able to recognize what in this moment is beautiful. And, you know, I, I worked on this a lot back when George Bush was president. <laughs> and uh, just because I didn't, you know, I really disagreed with the, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, so I'd, like, I'd bring to mind him interacting. I, I didn't, I've never seen him interact with his daughters, but, you know, I knew he had daughters. I assumed he loved them, and that was, you know, probably a decent father. And, you know, I could imagine, I could appreciate, you know, just in my imagination, them being happy together. And, like, it wasn't hard for me to have the wish, may whatever happiness you have in your family, may that continue May that increase. May that never end. I could imagine him being on his ranch and doing whatever he does, cutting brush or... <laughs> but I could... Or painting is a good example because it's so, you know, easy to make fun of people. And why not just... Like, well, whatever happiness you get there, may it continue, may it increase, may it never end. Why not wish that? And it's true with people who are heads of corporations because I know, I know how I can be greedy. I just have less power than those people. But I know how I can be greedy. I know how I hold on to my wealth and my privilege and my this and that. And there are, you know, relatively speaking, there are people way below my level of affluence that I could actually make a difference and for some reason, I choose not to. And so I know that experience. 
Now, I'm not saying that the world doesn't need to change, but if I happen to be somebody uh, in a moment where I'm seeing somebody having some happiness, why not let that happiness in? Well, that's happiness. You know, it's like seeing a child or seeing a squirrel with an acorn. We, we want to let it in in all the little and big ways. We don't want to miss any moment. And I think the reason we bring up statements like yours, Jeff, is we somehow feel like if we care about their happiness, we, don't, we won't do what needs to be done. But I'm not sure that that's actually true. Why can't we appreciate the humanity of, you know, like our president? Like, I really appreciate Barack Obama, and I'm really upset about the budget that just passed and, uh, and that he's going to sign it. And, uh, you know, the different things that were in that that I don't think should be in it. And, uh, and there are many things that he's done that are very upsetting to me. But I still can really appreciate his goodness when I see it. And so this is what we have to do. Instead of, because it isn't, there isn't a person there, George W. Bush, Barack Obama. It's not a thing. That's a wrong idea that we have. Mark Nunberg is not a thing, like a, a specific set permanent entity. There are all these different patterns. And sometimes there's just a human being enjoying a bowl of ice cream. And then other times there's a human being you know, using his power in ways that harm other people. And those moments, we should have compassion, both for the people that are being harmed by their unskillful actions, if that's what we're seeing, and for that person, because anybody acting out in unskillful ways is going to suffer. And uh, our own experience should have proven that to us if we paid attention. So we can see that Nobody gets away with anything in this world. I think we have to leave it here. It's 8.30. We'll pick it up next Sunday night. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. willing to be right in the middle of this world we inhabit without any fixed notions. May our practice lead to real wisdom and happiness and compassion. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.